In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. This is the I Spy Radio Show. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Keeping an eye on big government. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. And now, here is your host, Mark Anderson. Some 10 years ago, when Oregon was beginning its adoption of Kitzhaber's healthcare transformation, or as it was rightly being called back then, Obamacare and steroids, I was invited to give a public presentation on it. In that presentation, I discussed what the transformation was opening the door to, the coming attacks on our children and attacks on ideology and religion, which is what we're seeing right now. Who would have ever thought they would use healthcare to attack religion? Well, I did. And if you're a longtime listener to iSpy, you also knew that this was coming. I'll say it again. Environmental law is how they control businesses. Healthcare is how they control people. One of the things I specifically said during that presentation was the ramping up and takeover of mental health as they wrapped all aspects of a person under the healthcare umbrella. At that presentation, I said, imagine where this is going. Gee, Bob, as a devout Catholic, as a devout Bible-believing Christian, you're pretty intolerant. You need some counseling. In China and elsewhere, they call that re-education. And here we are. We don't like how you're raising your children. We don't like how you're teaching them to believe what the Bible actually says. So we'll tell them what we believe, and we'll do it without your knowledge or consent. And they claim, if you don't like it, we have laws that protect what we say, and you don't. And when it gets right down to it, being so intolerant, perhaps you shouldn't be allowed to raise your children. The state should decide. This is terrifying, and it should terrify everyone. Republicans, Democrats, independents, conservatives, progressives, straight, gay, it doesn't matter. You should be terrified. And it's terrifying because it is absolutely un-American. If you're okay that a leftist state system takes kids away from conservative parents because you don't like conservatives, then you've opened the door to a state like Florida taking kids from parents whose ideology isn't conservative enough. Last week, we talked with Suzanne Gallagher, the director of Parents' Rights in Education. During that discussion, she mentioned some groups that she works with, and we explored that more off-air. And this week, we wanted to do a little follow-up from that show. And we'll do that in the second half of the show with Ernie Trakis, an attorney and litigator with the Child and Parental Rights Campaign, and how you can protect your rights and your children and to raise them as you see fit. What you're going to hear is this. What your woke schools and woke teachers are telling you and the woke media is telling you that your child has more rights than you do is a lie. So stick around for that. This, all of this, is the importance of elections because you are literally giving someone else legal power over you and your life. These healthcare laws didn't spring from nowhere. They were schemed up and voted into law. And that's why it's important to pay attention to what is happening in the legislature. And to do that, I'd like to welcome Oregon State Senator Dennis Lithicum, who is joining us by phone. He is in Salem with the start of the legislative session instead of at home on his ranch in Senate District 28, which is in southern Oregon, mainly around the Klamath Falls area. Dennis, it's good to talk to you. You bet. It's always great to chat with you guys. As we were starting the program, I can't help but think I'm, uh, I've am i been pushed to the musty side of the state where it's cold and damp and wet and green moss is growing under every leaf. 
back yeah, in. That's the western I, side of Oregon, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's great to have a chance to chat with you. What's on the schedule for today? So uh, I thought we'd start by just getting a little bit of overview of the 22 elections and where that leaves you guys now. In 2022, the Republicans picked up three seats in the House, making it 25 Republicans to 35 um, out of 60 total in the House. That's 42 percent to 58 percent. And in the Senate, Republicans picked up one making it 13 with uh, County Boquist as the independent to 17 Democrats out of 30 total there or 43% to 57%. So given that Republicans picked up seats in both the House and Senate and very nearly picked up two more in the Senate, which would have made it a tie, are you noticing any changes uh, there with the Democrats? For, for example, since the Democrats lost seats and lost their supermajority, are they maybe just maybe a little more contrite and maybe got the message from voters or are they as unwilling to work with uh, Republicans as ever and will just do whatever they want? Well, we don't I don't know the answer to that. Um, yet what you describe is certainly very, you know, a, a real sense of Republicans made gains. And what we're trying to do in the Republican caucus had a press conference yesterday. Senator Canope is our minority leader, and he he led the conference. I was there. Finley was there. Daniel Bonham, Senator Thatcher um, was there, and as well as Dick Anderson. That's a leadership, including deputy leaders and whip like myself. And we're trying to evaluate and see whether they're, you know, metal to the pedal or whether they're gonna be willing to negotiate what their stances are. Right now, in a House uh, subcommittee on natural resources, water, and those kinds of things, we, Fred Gerard and I, have three different water bills that would be good for the eastern side. And what I suspect is I suspect these are just bill. I've had them for years on years. I keep submitting the same bill over and over again. It never gets a hearing. And, oh, now we have a hearing it's hard to tell. Is that just pretending we're going to play? It'll never get a vote. It'll go end up in the round file like all the other years. Or are they serious about thinking through some of these devastating issues with regard to water on the east side? And so they're all regulatory issues. We could solve them by snapping our fingers. We wouldn't have the third world problems that you have at every restaurant and every store that you visit if it wasn't for the minimum wage law. Minimum wage law was supposed to be a panacea. It would save the world from poverty and bring everyone up to appropriate levels of family income. And what it really did was it laid off all kinds of individuals and they've been right. replaced by kiosks. And so those people lost their jobs, but the legislators, the Democrat, the leftist legislators with this progressive mindset have destroyed families throughout Oregon with this insanity. And so you see too few people manning the their cash register. You see dirt and debris and stuff all over. You know, what used to be McDonald's has been known throughout the world for a standard and cleanliness and good food and fast and quick and efficient service. And now there's this dumb kiosk and dirt and grime and people who 
you know, ignore you because they don't dare have eye contact because if they have eye contact, then there's a response that they've got to pull out of the box. And it's destructive policy. Ludwig von Mises, I've mentioned this before, called this destructionism. He doesn't call it socialism or progressivism. He calls it destructionism because it is aimed at destroying the traditional values and culture and environment that we are familiar with. And it's it's a terrible place to find ourselves here in Oregon. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Okay, uh, next question is going to take a little bit of time, so let's take a break early. Uh, come back, we'll have lots more with Senator Dennis Lithicum out of Senate District 28. Stay with us. And welcome back. This is the Ice Pie Radio Show. We're talking with Senator Dennis Lithicum from Senate District 28, which is mainly down in the Klamath Falls area, but it runs all the way from the California border up to outside of Bend in Central Oregon, and we are talking about the new legislative session freshly launched here in Oregon. Um, uh, before we get to the bills, though, um, let's talk about the governor, uh, Tina Kotek, who was, in my opinion, uh, devious and a snake as a House leader. She played Christine Drazen on, on redistricting, uh, lied to her and got Drazen to Bend for a deal, and then immediately reneged on that deal once she got what she wanted and then rammed through the Democrat plan to ensure that four of the six congressional seats all fell under Portland's influence. So seeing how devious she has been, are you now a little concerned that she's governor of Oregon? Well, yeah, we and all, all of us have been concerned for a very long time, even in your uh, intro to this topic. You, you sound like you've been concerned for a long time. And um, we were expecting, quote, that red wave that never developed. Mm. And I'm, I'm wondering about election integrity in the same way sure. that we, we know that there was fraud and malfeasance. We see the Twitter files week after week. We see the FBI, the CIA. We see the, D, the Department of Health. We see Fauci's organizations all working together to spread lies, not mm. But outright fraudulent lies to the American public and pretend that they're the ones with the moral high ground. They know right from wrong. They've got the science on their side. And we see this throughout all of these policies. So if you're going to make a deal with a liar, you can expect to get fried. Um, you cannot pretend that the deal that you make with a liar, there's no honor among thieves will actually stand, they will stand by their word and hold true to what they said they were going to do. It's the same story that we see with CO2 as a pollutant. Yep. CO2 is not a pollutant. Nope, it's a nutrient. The gas stove in your kitchen is not a harmful device and um, would therefore should be banned. The gas car in your garage or out in your carport is not one of the most dangerous things ever invented by humankind. And these are just narratives. They're stories. They're held up by falsehood and fiction. They are not held up by truth, facts, honest data. And so that's the game that we're trapped in. We need to have individuals yesterday, uh, I'll just mention for your listeners, uh, Art Robinson uh, was sick. He's back on the floor. He gave a beautiful remonstrance. And, you know, with one hand tied behind his back, he shredded the Democrat leftist policy 
um, that th they've been lying about all these years. And so it, it's, it's just great to see him back on the floor. And um, it's great to bring truth to power. Tr truth, uh, I think it was St. Augustine said, you don't need to do anything with truth, but set it free yep. like a lion. It'll it defend can, itself, yeah. Yep, yep, it can handle its own fight. So um, the way to keep uh, that falsehood and fiction and the, you know, the lies alive is through censorship. Yep, yep. So if you can restrain truth, if you can present falsehood as fact, if you can misrepresent truth, then you've essentially not even allowed the lion onto the Colosseum floor. And so um, if he never's freed, he can never fight. So we're we're hoping to get the opportunity to fight. So one of the big things that um, Tina's predecessor was pushing for was the green agenda, and she pushed through carbon credits and all the rest, uh, or the carbon tax, I should say, you know, via executive order. Uh, and so the, the green agenda, I'm sure, is still on the ticket, and you guys certainly deal with this down in your neck of the woods there where they are, have been trying to pull out uh, some dams on the Klamath River for about 20 years now. Um, they had nearly gotten there, but then the, uh, the U.S. Congress flipped, and uh, they pulled the funding for that. That was, I think, back in 20, uh, 2014 or so. And uh, now the same situation where they had once again cleared to take it out. But now the Congress flips again back to Republican control. So I'm not sure that they get, will have the money for that. But it, one of the things that has been driving this green agenda is that here in Oregon, one of the things they did way back in the day was they removed hydroelectric electricity generation from uh, the classification of being green. Uh, you know, And the rain tends to fall here in Oregon, as you pointed out in the last segment. Can you guys maybe get that hydroelectric back in as as green energy? Because if we had that, we'd far exceed our goals. Yeah, uh, green energy is um, back in the mix. I, I'm sorry, uh, I said green energy. Hydro energy is back in um, and uh, successfully labeled as green energy. Good. But the 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 gotcha is on the CO2 side of the house. And um, for all the CO2, for the literally 40 some odd percent, 42 percent of the state, I think it's, it, yeah, it's 42 percent of the state that's owned, that's privately owned. We, we don't count any of that sequestration. The 58 percent that's owned by the federal government, we pretend that it doesn't even exist. And those forests, those millions and millions, thousands of millions of trees are all sequestering CO2. Does any of the uh, science calculate that sequestration and uh, the protection that we've given to our forests and the tree huggers and whatever? They've done a good job. We're not using the forest to produce lumber to build homes. So there's the governor's got an executive order for 36,000 new housing units. Where are you going to get the lumber from? Oh, that's right. Coming across the Canadian border doesn't cause any forest to get degraded, right? This is illogical. You're going to take lumber from somewhere. And the only thing we do with lumber in Oregon is allow it to burn up after the next lightning strike in the dry that's summer. Right, that's right. 
And so mismanagement of our forest uh, lends itself to their conversation. All those fires were because of global warming. Those fires were because of poor forest management. Right. They were yep. not because yep. of global warming. Well, if you believe that it's global warming drying out the forest, then you should be doing more management, not less for sure. Uh, you know, maybe one of the things you guys could do is convince the party that likes to see itself as the party of science, the Democrats. Uh, maybe you can convince them that CO2 is actually a nutrient, not a pollutant, because if you remember your second grade science, that's what we were all told. So, OK, let's go and take a break. Come back. We'll be talking about some of those bad and ugly bills. Stay with us. And welcome back. We're talking with Senator Dennis Lithicum. He's out of Senate District 28, which is mainly down in the Klamath Falls area. And uh, he's up here in Salem now, but with uh, the start of legislative session. And uh, so, Dennis, um, how many bills are you guys looking at this year? Well, the very first day, um, they read uh, somewhere just under 800 here in the Senate. And they read um, a couple of thousand over on the House side. Um, each uh, that was all pre-session filed. It's just a term that's used if you get it in before the session even starts. That's known as pre-session. Um, each senator gets five bills of his own. So there's 30 of us times, um, you know, five each. 150, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like, yikes. And then on the House side, they each get five, but there's 60 of them. So it's like, well, there's another 300, boat. yeah. You know, coming down the line and they're progressive. So, uh, you know, Dembro, Senator Dembro has a bill. Pro get this prohibiting engine exhaust and evaporative emissions from new small non road engines. That means your chainsaw, your lawnmower, your, uh, you know, your your weed whacker, whatever it is that you know, we're, we're going to prohibit, it's a law, you know, that you can't have emissions coming out of that uh, device. It's when, like- When the legislators oh, talk and spew hot air, does that count as emissions? <laughs> That's great, yes, it does. Um, and therefore we should, you know, uh, let's silence- Let's ban that, them. that's yeah, right. Yeah, let's ban, ban them. So I, I, I get asked this, you know, you're talking several thousand bills already, and th uh, this was, before session, and of course, we know more can be added. So I get asked this, and I'm sure you get asked something similar. If we are stop, if if we were to stop and never pass another bill for, oh, I don't know, ten years or more, would Oregon just implode? I mean, how many of these bills every year are truly necessary? None of them are necessary. You know, I'm a I'm I'm a staunch supporter of no more bills. I I only have a handful of bills. Um, they're mostly with regard to life and liberty issues. I I think we just overcook this beast, and we're gonna we're gonna drain the life out of it, and damage uh, the liberty that that Oregonians have today uh, by empowering the state. Every time a tax dollar leaves a private person's wallet and goes to the government, they utilize it to buy regulators, to buy laws, to buy rules, and then they turn that right on the individual they got the tax dollars from in the first place. Mm -hmm. It's a disastrous scene when you see the growth of government 
and the growth of the regulatory arm because it's damaging to the life you and I want to live. We'd like to be left on our own. Let me raise my own kids. Let me teach them about the birds and the bees. And let me go about, you know, teaching them how to work hard for a living instead of walk down to the Department of Health and Human Services and get a paycheck for the couch. Yeah, but but sadly uh, and and truly sadly, there is a great number of people that do want to be enslaved by the government. Uh, They want to be told to do uh, how to live their lives, uh, don't want to make decisions for themselves. And we saw that in COVID uh, is that, um, yes, you better obey. Uh, and we will tell you what to do. So uh, that's, it's sad that we've got that other side of the population as well that is very in, uh, down for slavery, I hate to say it. So uh, looking ahead here um, at, at some of the bills, what are some of the worst of the lot besides that emission bill? Well, there, there's a one we're going to hear this week. I think it's up tomorrow in judiciary is uh, voting for felons who are currently incarcerated. Felons can vote after they've served their time. They serve their three years, their five years, whatever. They're back at home. They're trying to make good on their um, lives. They're trying to be successful individuals within the marketplace of goods and services and sales and living a prosperous and healthy lifestyle. And they get to vote. It's the ones who are incarcerated who are still serving time that currently aren't allowed to vote. And so this is saying, well, look, for their human dignity, for their welfare, for their well-being, we need to give them a hand in the heart of our democracy, quote-unquote democracy, and let them uh, share their voice. So that means they'll get to vote against the stiffer Um, the stiffer or or let's say uh, hard standing judge in their community. They'll get to vote against uh, the penalties for uh, rape or incestual relationships or or even homicide. They can they'll have a say in what that looks like. Well, if if the Democrats are worried about dignity, then why not just let them go to begin with? You know, and and why have any sentencing? Uh, that, that just seems to be the, the way here with uh, yeah, Democrats. But, and, um, as far as any, you volunteer that, they'll take you up on it. So just <laughs> keep that quiet. Yeah, I know. So ODOT is out there trying to drum up support for tolls. Uh, Oregonians have opposed this for pretty much as long as I've been here in the late 90s. Is this going to go through, um, you think, uh, that we're going to start having tolls everywhere? Or is it going to be like the sales tax, which we have? Uh, we just either piecemeal it uh, with selective tax, sales tax on things like hotel rooms and cars and insurance policies, or we just make sure that we don't ca- call it what it actually is. We call it corporate activities tax instead of a sales tax. Yeah, well, that, that's another issue that we face, this uh, you know downright deviancy when it comes to the English language and how things are constructed. The Build Back Better, the Inflation Reduction Act, those are classic examples of this wasn't about inflation reduction. This was a green folly, and uh, we spent trillions of dollars on this folly. And so um, the public has to be aware and be careful to not get snookered by the language that legislators put on these things because they know their their ideas are bad ideas. They know there is harm to be had from these things, but they like the power that comes from 
tricking people into voting for these things because then it looks like they've got momentum. They shouldn't have this momentum. What yeah. they're doing is disingenuous and destructive. Yeah. Uh, so real quick, um, uh, are there any good bills, ones that really need to be passed? Uh, you, you know, back to, back to your, you started this session by saying, if we just stop passing bills, wouldn't we be okay? And if, you know, I've got a four foot section on my shelf over here behind me that you, your listeners can't see, that is the, you know, the code for the state of Oregon. Then we've got, you know, some, some same number of, you know, 18 feet of code for the federal government. And you've got uh, county codes and municipal codes at your local city. We have more than enough uh, laws on the books that people should know to stay to the right when you're driving and come to a full stop at the stop sign. We could do very nicely without any more bills getting passed. Well, I would certainly be in favor of that. Unfortunately, we're up against the clock. Dennis, I want to thank you so much for your time and good luck here in this session. You bet. We'll talk again soon. Coming up, if push comes to shove, do you know what rights you have or how to handle a school trying to parent your child and push you out of it? Stay tuned. The legal side of things you need to know about parental rights and today's schools. Hello, this is Joe Biden. You know me as the resident of the White House, but I'm here today to make a very important announcement and introduce you to my favorite radio show heard right here on this station. Did I ever tell you I invented radio? Well, I know I used to listen to the radio on the photograph anyway. The colors were amazing, even in black and white. Wait, is radio the one with the dots and dashes? You know, beep, 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 boop, boop, boop. Thank you, Virtual Joe, for that ringing endorsement. I'm sure iSpy Radio would be your favorite radio show if you were a conservative and if you actually knew what a radio was. At any rate, I'd like to welcome Ernie Trakis to the show. He is the Senior Litigation Counsel for the Child and Parental Rights Campaign. Their website is childparentrights.org. And, of course, we'll link that up on iSpyRadio.com as well. Mr. Trakis has more than three decades of legal experience, including as a trial lawyer, public defender, and has for 20 years represented K-12 public schools and charter schools. Ernie, it is great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. So from your organization's website, it says this, Child and Parental Rights Campaign is a nonprofit public interest law firm founded to defend parents' rights to shield their children from the impacts of gender identity ideology. So describe that in a little more detail. What does your organization do exactly? Well, CPRC, as I refer to it, Child and Parental Rights Campaign, is a nonprofit law firm that seeks to advocate for parental rights when it comes to the mental and physical well-being of their children and the well-established right of parents to supervise and manage the upbringing of their children. And so the organization was started oh, three or four years ago uh, in connection with issues evolving in the education setting and um, has since taken off. Uh, we've got cases all over the country now mm. representing parents um, who have got some concerns about public school districts overstepping their bounds with respect to how their children are being managed and um, in some cases manipulated. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> um, I, I also like how you guys say this. Children are being led to believe a powerful untruth about their bodies that they could be born into the wrong body. And I think that's so true. It's it's funny that the uh, the left, which often touts itself as being a pro-science, 
this is totally anti-science. Every cell in your body knows what gender you are. Correct. It's completely illogical, but that's sort of the time we're in right now. Yeah, really. Heaven forbid uh, logic prevail. You know, I, I asked our guest this um, last week, but maybe you can give us some clarity from a legal standpoint, because some years ago I had interviewed an attorney uh, regarding parents' rights. It was probably 2014-ish, maybe 2013. And it's my understanding from that conversation that the Supreme Court has repeatedly affirmed that parents are the highest authority and ultimate decision maker when it comes to raising their kids. It, is that still true? Absolutely. It's, it's certainly my opinion, the opinion of uh, Child Parental Rights Campaign. And uh, to be perfectly frank, I think the, it should be the opinion of any objective attorney who's read the case law and the, and the precedent. Um, so I don't think that that's going to be much of a contest once it reaches, and which it will at some point, the uh, Supreme Court. Mm. But the process has to work. And, and obviously, depending on the circuit or part of the country you're in, you may have, you know, extremely liberal um, appeals courts, and at the, at the other side of it, you'll have extremely conservative ones. And the decisions from those courts, with respect to parental rights, may well be different. That's why we have a Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So, of course, along the way, there can be a lot of damage done as as these uh, lawsuits wind their way up through the courts. I mean, you can have teachers and schools mm -hmm. promoting this um, before the. Correct. Supreme Court finally yanks her chain back. But if yes, I, I mean, if, if it's the fact that the Supreme Court has affirmed that, that parents are the ultimate arbiter and decision maker, why is it even any question when parents assert their rights? Uh, they want to know what the schools are telling their kids or want schools not to discuss some things with the kids. I mean, we have schools that are actively sabotaging parental rights behind their backs. How can they do this if parents are the ultimate decision maker per SCOTUS? Well, that's a multi-layered question. If, it, if you'll give me a few minutes, I'm happy sure. to try and answer it. Sure, we like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I, honestly, what's going on across the country now, not just in Oregon, but across the country, public school districts have taken on the, uh, the concept that they know better than parents with respect to certain issues. The most high-profile one being gender identity and gender transition, but there are others. Um, what's happening is attorneys who represent school districts are opining to their clients that um, Title IX of the Education Amendments Act authorizes them to um, withhold information from parents concerning gender transition plans that school districts are adopting for students mm -hmm. because to do otherwise would discriminate against the students. And any objective reading of Title IX um, won't get you there. So it, it's a question of, um, again, agenda-driven attorneys as well as, um, in some instances, school board members or school administrators um, wanting to do what they want and spinning a narrative that they believe suits their agenda. Um, as I said, I'm reasonably not just optimistic but confident once this issue reaches the Supreme Court, um, parents will prevail. So it's just a question, unfortunately, of eating up uh, in, inordinate amounts of time through the judicial yes. process to get there. Yeah. But uh, uh, they will prevail. And, and so part of our goal now at, at CPRC is to um, educate parents, equip them with the right um, understanding and knowledge to confront 
um, school administrators or school boards. And and uh, in some instances, depending where they are geographically, they may have more success than others. But um, the simple fact of the matter is, I think when it's all said and done, this issue that is um, public school districts supplanting parents as decision makers with respect to mental and physical well-being of their children is, in fact, in my opinion, the Roe v. Wade of the 21st century. Mm. Oh, that's a great way to put it. Okay, um, next question is a little bit of a big one, so let's go and take a break a little bit early. Uh, stay with us. We're going to okay. have lots more about parental rights. Uh, we're talking to Ernie Trakis. Uh, he is the Senior Litigation Counsel for the Child and Parental Rights Campaign. You can find their website at childparentrights.org. Stay with us. And welcome back. This is the Ice Spy Radio Show. This is a bit of a follow-up from last week's show discussing parental rights. This week, we're zeroing in on the legal side of things. We are talking today to Ernie Trakis, the Senior Litigation Counsel for the Child and Parental Rights Campaign, a nonprofit organization that can help you defend your child and your rights to protect your child when the schools and other people push ideology counter to your beliefs that you want your child to be raised in. Uh, their website is childparentrights.org, childparentrights.org, and we'll link that up on iSpyRadio.com as well. Just look for this week's show page, which is 1304. And um, Ernie, uh, this, this idea of, of pushing sex at kids, I mean, it, it's just suddenly, it seems, schools and, and in Oregon's case, the entire Oregon Health Authority and Oregon Youth Authority, I mean, Nazi S names agencies, if, ever, if ever there were any, uh, they are geared up to push sex and sexuality to kids, and, and they do so. But these are adult topics in, in many cases that they're, that they're pushing, and these are kids. Uh, we're seeing this everywhere, not just in Oregon. How did this get normalized to push sex and sexuality nonstop at underage children? Well, I mean, I think you have to look at it from a probably at least couple decade perspective, if not longer. Mm. And by that, I mean the increasingly progressive influence in K through 12 public education. So over time, in increments, more and more was tolerated, allowed. And from the parents' end during that period, parents operated until COVID with the assumption that, of course, teachers and school administrators are looking out for the best interest of my child. And so they deferred to school boards, school administrators, teachers. What COVID did was peel the veneer off of what really goes on in the classroom. And finally, parents now um, are fully apprised in the circumstances and engaged with respect to confronting this problem. But it's not something that just sort of happened. It it evolved over a long period of time with, um, as a result of a well thought through and intentional agenda. Mm. Um, so last week, uh, Suzanne uh, Gallagher with Parental uh, Parents' Rights and Education discussed how schools are pushing transgender now at kids. And to nutshell mm-hmm. that discussion, she mentioned that if a child says to teachers or to counselors there at the school that they think uh, that uh, they ad- identify as this or that, the school uh, swoops in and helps hide this from the parents. Um, first of all, it, it, is this legal? I mean, has this been challenged already? Well, the um, short answer to that is no, it's not legal. There are cases all over the country now that are working their way through mostly federal courts um, on this very question as to whether or not, um, in most instances, as I mentioned earlier, school districts are um, hiding behind their interpretation of Title IX of the Education Amendments 
Act of 1972 to claim that they have the not just right, but the absolute legal authority to withhold that information from parents because to do otherwise would discriminate against the student mm. and place the student uh, in in some kind of harm. Um, but again, as I've mentioned earlier, that is it's beyond even an ambitious interpretation of the federal statute. So no, it is not legal. And I'm confident that once these cases make their way through the courts, the parents will prevail. Um, it's But again, part of the agenda I talked about. So secondly, um, and this is really kind of a worst case scenario, she said that the state can even come in and take that child away if they believe that the parents aren't supportive of a child, meaning a not adult, of a child's life-altering decisions, uh, that these state agencies can come in and take children away from the parents' homes uh, if they think that there could be mental abuse or, or something else that the school disagrees with in, in, in order to try to protect this child. What can you tell us about this? Well, and that, that's pretty much how it operates in almost every state. And what you're talking about is what typically is called uh, the division of family services or um, something similar to that, which is part of the state's administration of uh, public health, right? And so there's what the statute calls mandatory reporters. This includes school teachers. And so if a teacher sees, let's make it a simple example, a child comes in with bruising on him or her, and it happens on a couple of occasions, and they have a reason to be concerned that a parent might be abusing the child, right? Or worse, the child comes in, or just as bad anyway, with um, unclean clothes and unkempt um, over a period of time, and the teacher suspects that the child's being neglected. They have an obligation, a responsibility as a mandatory reporter to report that to the Division of Family Services in the state. That's all well and good, well intended. What's happening now and what we're seeing is the weaponization of that by public school districts and public school personnel to intimidate parents from challenging the idea that somehow um, they don't want their child to, or at least they want to be informed if their child expresses some type of preference for a gender identity change or use of pronouns or names that are different than their given name. And um, I think you're going to see more and more of that. And that, again, will involve litigation because that is not abuse. It is not neglect. And um, there is some indication that school districts are now contemplating um, the weaponization of that vehicle to intimidate parents from uh, asserting their parental rights. Um, you know, regardless of the topic, whether we're talking gay rights or trans or whatever, this is a critically important issue when a school shields the child and, and sees itself as, as the child's defender from their parents' rights. Uh, but it's really indoctrination because it's only ever on the left. If a far right white supremacist uh, uh, teacher convinced a child that their black, gay, transgender parents were sinners and the child identified with that, uh, with the white supremacist, I assume there is not the same legal protection for the school to swoop in and protect that child. How is it that the law only protects leftist ideology? Because there is no law that really protects it. It's just that an assertion by the left that it does. Hmm. Um, and until and unless Congress acts to amend the express language in Title IX with respect to what constitutes sex, then any argument that somehow it's discriminatory or harassment not to support this gender transition is hollow 
it doesn't have any legal weight. Right. And yet, um, that's what's being spun by school districts right. and in some cases their lawyers. Yeah, and, and certainly in the media too, they're spinning this as though mm-hmm. this is their yeah. duty and, and, and all the rest, and they absolutely have this right. Okay, let's go and take a break. Uh, coming back, we'll wrap things up with Ernie Trachis. We're going to be talking about some tools and how you can fight back. And welcome back in our final segment now here on the Ice Party Radio Show. We've been talking with attorney Ernie Trakis. He's the senior litigation counsel for the Child and Parental Rights Campaign. Their website, childparentrights.org, childparentrights.org. And they've got great information up there for you if you're facing these kinds of issues. And so uh, you, I, during the break there, you had mentioned that one of the things that you guys have up there is a parental resource guide. Why don't you walk us through some of the tools that you guys have up there? Okay, great. Thanks uh, for that question. Yeah, we've just finished, um, and it'll be up probably, hopefully by the end of the month, um, and available in hard copy if you want. But uh, it's a parent resource guide to um, coach parents and inform them on how to deal with school administrators, boards of education, what have you. And it runs the gamut from everything, or for everything from student discipline, access to educational records, to um, your rights as a parent, both from a uh, First Amendment free speech right and and supervision right, but also a free exercise right um, if you're a person of faith. And that means whether it's Christian, Jew, Muslim, uh, Hindu, it doesn't matter. If if what's being propagated by a school district is counter to your sincerely held faith, you have a right to bring a claim on that basis as well, not just on the basis that you have the right to supervise your child. So all of that's in this resource guide, um, but the primary focus of it is to help you help parents equip them to deal with public school districts from as many different angles as we can, as I said, um, whether it's access to records, whether it's student discipline, whether it's curriculum. So one of the things that I'm looking here at your website, one of the things that I think parents will find very useful is you've got opting out of objectionable objectionable instruction. Uh, you can provide sample letters for parents to inform schools they're opting their children out of sexually explicit or scientifically unsound materials, promoting gender and mm-hmm. I, I, gender identity ideology. Um, and so they just uh, uh, go onto your contact pay, uh, page there and say, "Hey, this is what I'd like." Correct? Yes. Yep. And um, someone will get back to them, and this resource guide I think will probably be available by the end of the month. So, so it's brand new. In in terms of things, just get really confrontational. Uh, walk us through from a legal standpoint what parents should be doing if they find out that their child is now suddenly questioning their gender when they hadn't ever before, uh, and they just feel that their uh, their children are being pumped with information that runs contrary to their own beliefs. What are some of the first steps they should be doing legally? Well, obviously, um, you want to maintain a, a professional and controlled demeanor in expressing your um, concerns. Now, you can do that at a school board meeting. You can do it with a administrator or superintendent, assistant superintendent, principal. You can do it with a teacher. But in addition to that, one thing I always suggest is put it in writing hmm. as soon as possible. So if you have a meeting with an administrator, you follow it up with an email or a letter laying out what your concerns are, what they represented. And what I'm talking about is creating a paper trail, which will be useful to your attorneys if it comes to that, right? It also uh, makes everything very professional and, and tight in terms of chronology. What right. was said, who said it, when it was said. Um, so that's important as well. 
and then uh, just be persistent. And uh, if it comes to a point where you, you need legal advice, seek it out. There are plenty of uh, public interest law firms like ours that, that will at least talk to you anyway. We don't always take every case, but we certainly uh, interact with parents who, who contact us. So you said that you don't take every case. What are the types of cases that you're handling right now, and what kinds of cases are you looking for? Well, right now we're handling um, the majority are parental rights cases involving this transgender uh, affirmation agenda, where school districts have withheld information from parents about the implementation of gender-affirming plans, everything from adopting pronouns and different names to um, counseling sessions with students, affirming that uh, decision to, in some instances, the uh, provision of hormones and other type of treatment. So those are what we're focused on right now, but we're also in in getting involved in these um, cases I spoke about earlier where parents were were this idea that uh, abuse and neglect and the division of family services is being weaponized by school districts. And, uh, you know, again, in terms of equipping parents, if that were to happen to you, you need to understand that you do not have to speak with the people from uh, Division of Family Services unless they uh, convince you that they're objective. You do not have to let them into your home unless they have a warrant. Um, and so if it comes to that and you're blindsided by one of these uh Division of Family Services people because your school district has submitted a complaint to them because you've refused to embrace their adoption of a different ideology, gender yeah. Yeah. ideology, um, you do not feel, don't feel, because a lot of parents feel pressure because they're, they're going to be told, well, we'll take your children yeah. away. Well, yeah, that's the, certainly... The uh, fastest way to lose your rights is, is to not right. assert your rights, uh, for and sure. Not assert your rights, yep. exactly. So you need to know what you're doing and then contact a lawyer when you can. Okay. All right. Well, unfortunately, we are up against the clock. We'd love to have you back on, uh, because sorry. this is certainly a wide-open topic, for sure. Um, Ernie Trakis with the Child and Parental Rights Campaign. Ernie, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, love to come back anytime. Oh, absolutely. So I just want to revisit a couple of key takeaways that I really hope you caught. And if you miss those, you can get the podcast version at iSpyRadio.com and listen to this again. Or at your favorite podcasting platform, just look for the iSpy Radio Show. But I thought it was extremely revealing in that last segment that the left and woke schools are asserting rights they don't have, claiming they have powers under Title IX to protect kids whom they have confused into believing something they're not. And they can afford to be bullies because, like so much of what the left does, they have endless amounts of taxpayer dollars and are more than happy to go to court in the hopes of landing an activist judge who will ignore rulings by the Supreme Court that have said the opposite of what they claim. Parents have the rights. Parents have the duty to raise kids as they see fit, not schools. Don't let them bully you into not exercising your rights. And think about that. The Supreme Court of the United States has your back. Like so much of what the left does, it's a facade. And because they control the narrative and have excellent storytellers in the media, combined with the weight of a few people in government agencies, they are able to create a convincing facade. But like the old movie sets, it's just the storefronts with nothing in them. Or completely fake with green screens and special effects by computer. And isn't that really today's left? Pretending they're something they're not, propped up by some computers and a few woke people in high places. Second, be sure to document it. Everything. Creating that paper trail is critically important, and you can trust me, I've been through some court cases. 
save emails, write them to recap conversations. Even if it's just a journal, write it down. Times and dates and what was said. Winning court cases do not come down to he said, she said. They are instead who has the best documentation and can prove what the other person said or did. And if you need it, or think you may, contact the Child and Parent Rights Campaign or an organization like it. Because as we say every week, the best information does no good if you don't use it. Reagan, what do you think? I do not believe in a faith that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a faith that will fall on us if we do nothing. It's more than a show. It's self-defense. The I Spy Radio Show.